Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your kindness to us again in giving us your word. Uh, We are amazed, Lord, at uh, the story that is being unfolded in poetry form um, that portrays a man who is in the, in the, the depths of suffering and teaches us, Lord, so many truths about how we are to lean into you during those times. Now, Lord, as we place ourselves under these two chapters, would you give us wisdom? Would you give us discernment? Would you allow us to be teachable? Lord, may distractions not move us away from you, but Lord, um, give us a, a diligence to, to allow you to speak. And Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? What we have not, would you give us? And what we are not, Lord, would you make us? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I want to talk quickly to all of the young people that are with us this morning. Um, I know that going through a book like Job might be difficult for you because it's poetry. And I wanna encourage you to listen. And as you're listening, maybe to draw some things on the, the paper that you received this morning about what we're studying. Maybe it's a picture, maybe it's an image, maybe it's something about Job that will help you kind of uh, be drawn in and be a part of what's going on this morning. And then after church, come up and show it to me. Let me, let me see what you've done. Okay, be, be a great thing for us. All right, well, let's now begin to think through what we have before us. When you've just listened to one of your friends accuse you of sin by making up all sorts of lies and by twisting your words about what you believe about God and then at the same moment has the audacity to call you to repentance because of your great sin, how are you to respond? If you were with us last week, you will know that chapter 22, that is exactly what Eliphaz did. So full of passion and frustration that he spews forth all these false accusations and lies about Job. And Job sat there and endured it. So now how are you to respond? How would you expect Job to respond or anyone to respond having experienced that kind of barrage of untruth so pressured by his friends with his other friends sitting there? You might be tempted to respond in a number of ways. To fight back, to give anger back in kind. And I think sometimes our sinful nature is inclined to do that. Or maybe, rather than fighting back, you just give up. And you allow yourself to to kind of move off into, into despondency or even depression. Or maybe you're moved to give in. You're a peacemaker. So you find some way to to compromise and to to go halfway or just to to go through the motions just to settle the argument and be on with the next thing because the conflict is just too much. But what we see in Job's response is a struggling discipline that longs for the justice of God. Job isn't out of the woods by any means. He's still grieving, he's still groaning. We are in chapter 23 and 24. We're just about halfway through the book. In other words, there's a lot of struggle yet. 
But there's something happening in Job as he's interacting with his friends. In the face of such a challenge, we find an imperfect but confident discipline that is settled on God and his ways. So rather than lash out at his friends in anger or fold up in the fetus position in the ash heap or capitulate to his friends' demands and simply keep the peace, we find Job leaning into what he knows to be true about God and his ways. Job knows that God is a God of justice that the righteous will be vindicated, that the wicked will be punished, that what seems wrong in this world will one day be made right because God is the creator and sustainer of the universe and is totally sovereign over his life. But what is justice? Simply said, justice is getting what you deserve. On the streets, someone might say, Don't do the crime if you can't do the time. Why? Because justice will pursue you. And who determines what true justice really is and can carry it out fairly and rightly and consistently? Is it our Congress? I hope not. Is it our California judicial system? No. Is it our federal judicial system? No. Is it our Supreme Court? Thank you, no. (laughs) You may have remembered that epic story, Les Miserables. And that story follows the life of Jean Valjean, who in a moment of hunger and desperation steals a loaf of bread, and he was caught. And ultimately, he was sentenced to five years in prison. Nineteen years later, he is finally released. And when Jean Valjean is is finally freed, his jailer, his name is Javert, pursues Jean Valjean for not fulfilling the terms of his parole. In other words, it would be like a sex offender not registering in his community and violating that term of his parole. And so Javert is just, through the story, is pursuing Jean Valjean, but Jean Valjean has has changed, he has reformed himself, he is now an outstanding member of the community. He's grown a business, he employs many people, he treats them well, and evil adopts a young orphan girl by the name of Cosette. Yet Javert is relentless in his duty to his job and uphold justice. It doesn't matter that Jean Valjean, or that, that, that Valjean's life has changed, that he no longer possesses the characteristics that landed himself in prison in the first place, Javert presents the law, and it is his only duty to uphold the law. The law for him is everything. You see, his justice is rigid. It's harsh. It is inflexible. There's no room for consideration for someone's suffering um, or their poverty to be considered in light of the crime that they've committed. There's no room for mercy, there's no room for grace. The law is the law and it must be obeyed and upheld. 
And although there are many sub-themes in this story, it is that, this main theme of Javert's pursuit of Jean Valjean. And ultimately there's a scene when Javert finally has Jean Valjean in shackles and he's on a bridge. And this is what he says to Jean Valjean. I needed to think about what you deserve. You're a difficult problem. You don't understand the importance of the law. I'm going to spare you from a life in prison, Jean Valjean. It's a pity the rules don't allow me to be merciful. I've tried to live my life without breaking a single rule. Then he unhandcuffs Valjean, shackles his own hands and says, you are free. And then he launches himself into the Seine River and he dies. Now what's going on here? For all of his life, Javert has embraced the law, has, has believed in the law, has stood for the law, but he now realizes that that law is insufficient. The law of man is insufficient to truly deal with people who are innocent or who have, have reasons why maybe they have fallen into breaking the law. And so what he's upholding in his life is the law of man that can be upheld unjustly and by eagerly and overzealous authorities. But what begins to realize is that there's a higher system of justice embraced by the church that is rooted in the scriptures. It's a justice that embraces grace, mercy, and forgiveness. And he finally realizes that and he throws himself off the bridge and to his death. Now friends, I share that story, whether you've known the story or not, I share that with you because uh, for those who are followers of Christ, we realize that the courtroom that really matters is not the courtroom of man, it's the courtroom of heaven. That is ultimately where things are going to be made right. The justice of man, although rooted in a Judeo-Christian ethic, and it, uh, it attempts to be consistent, but it always runs the risk of being polluted by sinful man and the, the sinful agendas of man. But in the courtroom of heaven, a just judge rules with fairness and equity. And man may not receive the justice he is due on this earth, but he will receive it in the courtroom of heaven. So what we find in our text today is Job longing for justice that can only come from the courtroom of heaven. I'm just trying to give us the big picture and, and, and the, I might want to say the emphasis that's happening in these two chapters. He has had to endure much. And he has listened to his friends preach to him their doctrine of retribution that a man will reap what he sows, that the reason you're suffering is because of sin, or the reason that you're blessed is because of right living. And to that end, their justice is similar to the justice that Javert embraced, a rigid, cold, inflexible justice that has no room for grace, mercy, or forgiveness. They cannot comprehend a righteous man suffering. 
but Job knows that there is higher justice. A justice that is consistent but fair, that is married to grace, mercy, and forgiveness. He knows that God's justice, the justice from heaven is pure, it's right, it's good, and it is to that justice he now appeals on behalf of those who are righteous and to the shame of those whose lives are wicked. And friends, these two sides of the coin of God's justice flow out of the gospel. It is Christ who provides justice by his sacrificial death that brings forgiveness through the cross. It is Christ who exercises judgment on those who continue to rebel against his gracious gift. Now what would it be like if we were not confident as God's people that justice is yet to come for the wicked? What would that be like? We would be living our lives in despair because the only place we could find justice to be satisfied would be here and now. And one of the strengths that we have because of the gospel is when we look to the end, when we look to the judgment, when we look to what God will ultimately do by bringing everyone before him, knowing that he will exercise his justice to the righteous because of what Christ has done or to the wicked because of their consistent rebellion of his grace. Friends, that's the heart of the gospel. That is what we rest in. And that is what Job is appealing to. So first of all, I want you to notice that he longs for, those little words up there that you can't read are, he longs for the vindication of the righteous. So with a a magnificent disregard for everything that Eliphaz has just said. In other words, he isn't reacting now to Eliphaz and, and challenging him like he has done in the past in the conversation. He disregards what he says and he launches into a powerful expression of his own urgent desire for a settlement in his dispute with God. He's not understanding what God is doing, why God is doing it. Now remember, Eliphaz called on Job to turn to God and repent. But Job now turns to God in an appeal for vindication. And as Job longed for vindication, he is comforted and confident that his God is righteous, sovereign, and faithful. And as such, that he will judge him fairly, refine him thoroughly, and complete him purposefully. And as we go through these, there's going to be three sections here in this chapter, I want you to notice that there's something about the character of God that rises up in each of them. Let's first of all think about the fact that God is a righteous God and he will, he will judge Job fairly. Now notice in verse two, this is really important for us to understand because we can forget this. Job is still suffering. (laughs) He may be talking, he may be listening, but he is still in the thick of suffering. He says, today also my complaint is bitter and my hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Those are expressions of suffering. Those are expressions of difficulty. He has much to complain about, but he is resolute in pursuing God. The word bitter here 
has the idea of rebellion and so emphasizes this rebellion against his friends and what his friends are saying. And so it's a relentless, uh, uh, or sorry, resoluteness pursuit uh, for God's justice in his life and his vindication. He has his hand heavy upon his groaning. The idea there is his hand is, is, is holding down what he feels, what he wants to say, what he wants to do. And so what you have here is Job exercising heartfelt discipline because of something that is important to him. So he looks for God in his seat. That's verse three. If you notice in verse seven, it says, the, there an upright man could argue with him and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. And so this is a courtroom scene and the seat here is the seat of the judge in the courtroom of heaven. And when he's standing before the judge, he would make his case and, and, and he knows the judge would listen to him and Job expects that although God is mighty, he's great in power, that he would pay attention to him. I mean, do we actually believe that when we go to God in prayer that he listens to us? That he pays attention to us? Or is God so far removed from us that he just doesn't care? He's really not involved in the details. He's kind of involved in the generals. No, we, we just affirm that we can come boldly to the throne of grace. God listens, God, God cares, he pays attention. So, so Job here longs to stand before God knowing that he is innocent and to be acquitted by his righteous judge. And friends, you and I have a judge who will ultimately rule justly and with equity. And it is the truth that lifts us from our earthly struggles and both comforts us and gives us confidence to press on. He's a righteous judge. Secondly, he is sovereign and will refine Job thoroughly. Job, in his longing for vindication, has sought God. He's gone forward, backward, left, and right. That's what the text is telling us. But God is not there. Job can't perceive him. He can't behold him. He can't see him. But hear this. But what Job cannot see by experience, he knows by revelation and therefore by faith. And friends, sometimes we are looking for God in the midst of our trial. We want to be satisfied by some tangible things. God, appear to me. Show me. Let me see something. But what, what is the strength for us as the followers of Christ is that God has already revealed himself. And so to say we're trusting God by faith is not to trust God out of nothing or in nothing, it's to trust God because of what he has revealed to us in his word. That is strength for us. And Job reveals that he certainly knows three things. He knows that God is sovereign over his way. Which include both the times of prosperity and suffering. Secondly, he knows that God is purifying through the trials he's enduring. And that in the end, he will come out of the refiner's fire as more purified gold. 
So he knows God is sovereign over his way. He knows that God is purifying him through the trials. He also knows that the weather vane of his life has been pointing in the direction of living for God. In other words, he says, I am a, I'm a person of integrity. I, I've held fast to God's steps and kept God's ways without wavering. I've not departed from God's commandments. I've not, I have treasured God's word more than food. This has been the direction of my heart. And so Job is saying to his friends and those listening, as well as to God, that he is a man of integrity who has been looking for God, but even though God has been silent, he knows that God knows of his suffering and that God is at work through that suffering for his good. Now, friends, these are no small things. In fact, these are very, very significant things because what's happening with Job is that he is disciplining himself to remember what he knows is true about God. Now, friends, it's so important for us to understand that suffering is the means of our spiritual refinement. Listen, friends, gold does not fear the fire. The furnace can only make gold purer and brighter. So suffering isn't because somehow you are immature in your walk or because you failed in some ways in your walk. No, suffering comes to all of God's children according to God's plan and God's time in order to refine them more and more and to grow them and to purify them in Christ and for his glory. And just think of the things that you've had to go through. See, when we think that God is punishing us because of suffering, then we're looking at reasons why he's punishing us. And we say, oh, it's because you are immature, it's because you failed, it's because, but God brings suffering to those who are godly people who are walking faithfully with him. Why? Because he continues to refine us in the fires of that refinery so that as gold, we will be more pure and more pure and more pure. So he's righteous, he's sovereign. And the third, he is unchangeable and will purposely complete his plan in Job. Now, although Job is confident that he is in the hands of a sovereign God, he is also fully aware of just how sovereign he is. It's one thing to say God is sovereign, but do we understand what that actually means? <laughs> is it just kind of thing, well, God's kind of big, he, he, he covers it all. What does it mean to be sovereign? And he says here that he is unchangeable. Now, that word literally means that God is unique. He cannot be compared he is one. He is the unique one. And as such, God is to be feared. C.S. Lewis famously said of Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia, who is a picture of God, he is not a tame lion, but he is good. Job now echoes what the Apostle Paul says about Christ's work in us, that he who began a good work in you 
will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. But for Job, the good work includes his suffering. It is what God desires, it is what God does, it's what God has appointed for him. These are all words that I'm pulling right out of the text that he says about God. But Job is confident that God is the one who will bring it to an end. Yet that confidence is also terrifying and makes his heart faint. Now, why is he terrified and why is his heart faint? Because Job doesn't know if his ordeal will soon be over. Or if God and his divine plan still has more suffering for him to endure. Now, just think about the story of Job. All these things happened so quickly, didn't they? He lost his family. He lost his possessions. And he loses his health. His wife kind of turns on him. You think, man, okay, good, suffering's over. Friends come, great, comfort. But now his friends become a source of suffering. And sometimes, friends, we, 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 we're not ready for the suffering that comes out of suffering. And so there's a terror here, but it's, it's a right terror because we know that God is sovereign. He is ordering our steps. He is refining us in his refinery. But the reality is we don't know if that suffering is over or if it's going to continue. And so it's understandable he feels that way. Now, friends, so much of American Christianity has shaped our view of God so that what Job is saying here seems to be a little out of touch. We've come to see God mainly through the lens of his love, right? And we're so troubled by Job's struggle with terror and dread in his presence. But Christopher Ashe, I think, helps us here when he says, the hope of final justification before God is not a light or shallow hope. We will never breeze into God's presence to talk with him face to face. I think we have this, this idea that, oh, I'm a child of God. Hey, he's my buddy. You know, it's like, hey, listen. No, he is God. And even when you enter into heaven, even as intimate as, as he says he will be with you because you're one of his children, you are his friend, when you stand in his presence, you will fear. You're not going to be high-fiving him. Why? He's God. Don't make any mistake. That doesn't take anything away from his tenderness and his kindness and his love. But he is God. Now in the last sentence of this chapter, we see Job resolute once more that the darkness will not stop him looking for God and looking for vindication. Even if suffering continues, he's still gonna fight for what he knows to be true. And friends, this is the hope that we have through the gospel. That those who fully deserve the fires of hell because of sin, but have tasted the grace of forgiveness through the cross, have been vindicated by Christ's death, and will be vindicated when they stand before him on the day of judgment. We have that confidence, friends. And so in the midst of our suffering, when we can't see God, we embrace what we know to be true, that the righteous will be vindicated in the end. The vindication may not come in this life, 
but all will be set right in the courtroom of heaven. Let me put it to you this way. According to the Center for Disease Control, between 1990 and 2015, that's 45 years, there have been over 45.7 reported abortions in the United States. And that doesn't include California, Maryland, or New Hampshire because they're not required to report. So that amounts to approximately 3,000 abortions per day. Again, let me put that in perspective. That is like 9-11 taking place in America every day for 45 years. Friends, it's staggering, isn't it? And none of those children who've been ripped out of the safety of their mother's wombs have received any justice. Their blood has not been avenged. The crimes against them have not been satisfied. I'm not making these statements based on the courtroom of man. I'm making these statements based on the courtroom of heaven. But friends, justice will come for them, each one of them, because the courtroom of heaven will hear their cries and will speak on their behalf. The courts of man may be silent or entrenched in rebellion against God, but justice will be meted out with a shout from the judge of the universe. The courtroom of heaven will set things right, will vindicate the righteous. So Job in his darkness, his suffering longs for God's vindication of the righteous, but he also longs for God's justice to be meted out on the wicked. So now we have the punishment of the wicked. He's longing for it. Now this chapter revisits the themes that have been spoken already by Job and his friends. It speaks to the seeming injustice that God permits in this world, and Job is longing for the courtroom of heaven to speak and find the wicked guilty of their injustices. And he begins by giving us a a catalog of the injustices that are taking place in the country. Notice down in verse 12, it says, from out of the city. In other words, outside of the city, these, these, uh, the, the dying groan, right? And beginning in verse 1, why are not the times of judgment kept by the Almighty and those who know him never see his day? Some move landmarks, they seize flocks and, and pasture them. The idea is these are, these are landmarks, these are boundary lines. So these are, these are events, these are activities. These are the ways that the wicked are interacting with people in the countryside. And what is unjust about their behavior? Well, as we read through, you'll notice, first of all, they claimed the land by moving the landmarks. That's verse two. They seized the cattle. That's, um, again, verse two. And then we find they're abusing the people, and the emphasis here will be on three groups, the fatherless, the widow, and then the poor. 
And Eliphaz has falsely accused Job of the very same things that are, that are listed here. And now from verses four through verse 12, Job describes the miserable and hard life of the poor at the hands of the wicked. Now friends, this is the largest catalog description of the suffering of the poor in the scriptures. Notice what Job says. They're like wild donkeys. They're destitute and without a permanent home. They're wasteland foragers. They're, they're, they're left to eke out a meager existence in the wasteland by foraging for food, whatever they can find. They're abused workers. So here they are out in the wasteland, but even when they do find work, the poor are left to work for the wicked, gathering father in their fields and gleaning grapes in the vineyard. They are unprotected survivors. They're forced to live naked and without clothes sufficient to cover them from the elements and can only find shelter by pressing themselves against a rock. These, these are incredible images, friends, that we have here. Can you imagine it, it raining, and you hardly have any clothes on you. You're cold and you're wet and you're trying to find some shelter and all you can do is find a rock to kind of nestle yourself into so that some of that rain doesn't hit you. It's the kind of life that they had to endure. And the wicked continue to abuse the poor by snatching their children away from them. Even when the babies are, are there nursing at their mother's breast, the wicked would, would stoop to hold these infants and take them as collateral until a debt had been paid. And the abuse of the wicked is so hard that the poor are naked, hungry, thirsty, and overworked. So it's not surprising that we read then in verse 12 that the groaning and the crying of the poor under the abusive hand of the wicked rose up. This is the poor. This is not where you want to be. But of course, the question here is this. Where is God in all this? And that's what Job is getting at. It says in verse 12, yet God charges no one with wrong. So all this abuse, all this injustice now is being poured out by the wicked against these people who are now destitute. And yet God charges no one with wrong. Where is the one who is to come to their aid and exercise justice? Why are the wicked allowed to treat people with such disdain and get away with it? God is silent. Why does he not speak? Now you have to remember here that what Job's friends were saying is that the wicked are judged now. That the wicked don't prosper. That don't get away with things in this life. And Job is saying, wait a second here, that's not true. But he's also lamenting the fact, where is God? So there's injustice in the country. There's also injustice in the city. Look at verse 13. There are those who rebel against the light, who are not acquainted with its ways, and who do not stay in its paths. The murderer rises before the light that he may kill the poor and needy, and in the night he is like a thief. The eye of the adulterer also waits for the twilight. 
In the dark, they, that would be thieves, dig through houses. By day, they shut themselves up. So the wicked here are described as those who rebel against the light. They operate under the cover of darkness and sin secretly in the night. They do this to remain undetected and unnoticed by the watching eyes of others. And God's standards of honesty and decency are not in their hearts at all. They don't care about those things. And Job identifies three groups, right? The murderer. He rises up early in order to kill the poor and needy. The adulterer waits for dusk, veils his face and says in his heart, no eyes will see me. And then there's the thief who breaks into houses confident that he will not be detected. And during the day, they sit in their places and anticipate what's going to happen again in the darkness. Now, while most righteous people rise up early to work hard in the morning, the opposite is true of these wicked people. The world is upside down for them because darkness is their morning. But this is the time in the darkness when they worked hardest to carry out their sin. So friends, what Job is saying is this, there's injustice by the hand of the wicked in the countryside and there's injustice by the hand of the rebel in the city, but again, where is God? Why does he not come to the aid of those who are simply seeking to live a righteous and peaceful life? But then this final section, we find that there is justice in heaven. See, Job turns to his friends and quotes their words. His logic was this. If they were correct that God always punishes the wicked now and that all the wicked should be presently suffering punishment, then let's see if that is true. Let's read their claims. And so verses 18 through 20 are their claims. Verse 18 says, you say, and then there's this quote, Swift are they on the face of the waters. Their portion is cursed in the land. No treader turns toward their vineyards. Drought and heat snatch away their snow waters. So does Sheol, those who have sinned. The womb forgets them. The worm finds them sweet. They are no longer remembered. So wickedness is broken like a tree. This is what they're claiming. This is what his friends are saying. The wicked are like the foam on the face of the water, tossed to and fro and finally blown away. Their portion or their, their homes or estates will be cursed. Their vineyards abandoned. Their, mother, their natural resources, that would be the snow water, will be dried up by a drought. Their mothers who brought them into the world would forget that they ever existed. The worms would enjoy eating their dead bodies. They are forgotten. They're broken like a tree. The grave, Sheol, would snatch them all. This is what you claim, Job is saying to his friends but that is not what happens, is it? So let's remember not only their claims, but let's also remember what the wicked are like. And we just have one verse here where he just reminds his friends what the wicked are actually like. They wrong the barren, childless woman and do no good to the widow. Remember, this is a couplet, so it's all talking about the same person. The barren, childless woman is a widow without any children. 
So the wicked are marked by cruelty to those who are defenseless. A widow who has no children has no children to come to defend her in her time of need. So she is preyed on with heartless cruelty. And I'm reminded of those people who make it their day jobs to scam older, the older generation out of their life savings. They make phone calls, they send emails. And so what happens, of course, is, is this older generation, because they don't have anyone protecting them, are, are drawn in and they believe what these people are saying. And I have to ask myself, seriously, what kind of person gets joy out of taking advantage of those who are disadvantaged? I mean, really? What kind of person does that? The answer, those who rebel against the light and are wicked. Friends, this is a truth for us to remember, that the the wicked are truly wicked. Wicked. But then let's consider what actually happens to them. This is what he's saying. So what has happened to the wicked? Yet God prolongs the life of the mighty by his power. They rise up when they despair of life. He gives them security. They are supported and his eyes are upon their ways. They are exalted a little while and then they are gone. They are brought low and gathered up like others. They are cut off like the heads of grain. We could read these verses quickly, just like I have done purposely, and come to the conclusion that God prolongs their lives, that they are secure, that they are exalted. But with each of these descriptions of apparent blessing, there is a statement of God's hidden plan. Yes, God prolongs their lives. They are not destroyed immediately. But a day will come when they rise up and despair of life. They may prosper for a season, but the end they will despair. So God prolongs their lives. Yes, they feel secure and supported, but all the while, God's eyes are upon their ways. Now as God might give them prosperity, he might even give them security, verse 23 there, but his eyes are always on their ways. He has not stopped watching them. And we could summarize some of the things that we're saying here is this, that he does see their abuse. God does care about those who suffer under their cruelty. God does know what is going on but they don't know that he knows. Yes, they are exalted for a little while, and then they're gone, we're told, but there will be a harvest. A harvest of wicked men. And they'll be gathered up from the four corners of the world, and they will be cut off like the heads of grain. Judgment will come. God will exercise his judgment on the wicked in his time, and in his place. He will act. And for all those who are wicked, who are guilty of abuse and injustice toward mankind, and who hold out their fists in rebellion, Jesus is coming, friends. Romans 2.5 reminds us 
of that, Paul says this, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Just, just listen to that, all right? You are storing up wrath. That will be turned back on you in judgment. There's a story told about an arrogant, irreligious farmer who had developed a strong disdain for religious faith of many people in his community. And most of the farmers in that town were godly people and they would go to church every Sunday. They, they wouldn't work on their, their fields at all. They gave that to the Lord. But this farmer chose to plow on Sundays after saying, hands that work are better than hands that pray. There's a good bumper sticker for you, right? Part of his land bordered the church, and so he deliberately would make it a point of driving his tractor on Sunday during the worship services right there by the church. Now, weary of hearing how blessed everyone was because they attended church, he plowed and he fertilized and cultivated his field all without God's help, so he believed. And when October harvest came, this farmer had the finest crop in the country, or in the county, I should say. Now, when the bumper harvest was complete, he submitted a very lengthy letter to the editor of that local paper, attempting to belittle the farmers who believed that their harvest resulted from God's blessing. Here is what he said. Sir, I have been trying an experiment with a field of mine, I plowed it on Sunday, planted it on Sunday, cultivated it on Sunday, harvested it on Sunday, even carted the crop home to the barn on Sunday. Now, Mr. Editor, what was the result? Well, this October I got more bushels to the acre from that field than any of my Sabbath-keeping neighbors got from theirs. Where is their God? Now, he expected an enthusiastic, supportive uh, response from the editor, a man who was also uh, not known for his religious beliefs. But when his letter appeared in the local paper, the editor added this pithy comment, God does not settle all his accounts in October. You see, this was the problem Job had with the limited perspective his three counselors were touting. They assumed that God settles all his accounts in October. In other words, his friends presume that God closes out all his books in this lifetime. But God does not always execute his, just, his justice immediately. Sinners often succeed in this life, and saints often suffer. This was just the opposite of what Job had been hearing from his friends. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar had been telling him that all sinners suffer and pay for their sins now. Now Job turns to his friends in this final verse, and he's basically saying this, have you heard what I have just said? If it is not so, will you prove me a liar? and show that there is nothing in what I say. In other words, do you see what I'm saying 
and that it is true. Now friends, do you see how Job has, has moved in these two chapters from a place of complaint and groaning to a place of confidence in God who is righteous and sovereign and unchanging? A God who is watching, a God who has been watching, and a God who will act against the wicked according to his purpose and his plan. You might even say that Job is preaching the gospel to himself through his suffering and despair. And that he's clinging to what he knows to be true about God and his ways. He's longing for the courts of heaven to exercise justice for the righteous and against the wicked. My friends, just by means of brief reflection on what we've looked at so far, in our struggle of suffering, there's maybe four things to remember, just four things I want to quickly highlight here. They're not up on the screen. Number one, we need discipline. What we see here is Job disciplining himself in the midst of his suffering by reminding himself about what he knows to be true about God and his ways. And so it's a discipline in the mind. It's a discipline in the heart. It's a discipline to suppress the feelings that rage in our suffering. Now, by, the, by this, I am not saying for you to go in to someone who's suffering and say, hey, slap you silly, you need to be disciplined. But I'm saying if you're in that position, part of your discipline is to not wait to develop a theology of suffering and allow suffering to be the beginnings of understanding what that looks like, but to have already laid that out so that when suffering comes, you already have truth that you can be reminded of that will help you. Oh, it's gonna be hard, and your emotions will flare, but there's a discipline needed, and there's a discipline that we can have as God's children in the midst of that suffering. Secondly, we need endurance, because as we said, suffering doesn't usually happen just in one lump. There are multiple things that happen in the midst of suffering. And you might be tempted not just only to give up because of the immediate suffering, but you might be tempted to throw in the towel because of the ongoing suffering that comes with that initial bout of suffering. And God's children need endurance and can find endurance and, and re remind themselves that God is the one who is sovereign, who is refining them Third, we need awareness that God is at work. That we are that goal that is being refined. That God has not forgotten about us. That there is a plan. That all these things are in his timing and according to his will. And although we can't see him, although we may not understand all the things that are happening, the whys and the whats of them, we are aware that God does that he knows, we may not know, but he knows. And the more that we are aware of those truths, the greater ability that we'll have to, to face our trial. And the third one is this, and I'll have to explain it, but we need wakefulness. It's a word that we learned in our men's Bible study by the author of one of the books that we're reading, but it has the idea 
of the ways God teaches us through our suffering. He wakes us up to see, so this is what it means to rest in God. Suffering is often the means by which we actually learn the theology that we've put in our head practically. And we have a greater capacity to understand who God is and what it is like to be one of his children. What are the lessons that you are learning in the middle of your suffering? How will that change you to become more and more like Christ? Now let's bring this to a close quickly. And I want to draw your attention just briefly to some scriptures that remind us that all of this justice comes through Christ. Here are just a few passages of scripture. They're up there on the screen. I'm going to read them. And you just kind of listen to them and hear the fact that it's Jesus that is the one who provides the justice that we're longing for. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to your royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor, of the people. Uh, Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. We move into Isaiah, Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly uh, burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. John 5, 30, Jesus now speaking to to others. He says, I can do nothing on my own as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will but the will of him who sent me. And then finally, Acts 17, 31. Here we have a sermon, but in this sermon we find this truth because he that is Christ has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You see, Job's longing is found and satisfied in the person of Christ who by his death on the cross provided mercy, forgiveness, and grace by bearing the punishment you and I deserve. And there the exercise of justice that had been promised is realized. Yet we wait a day when Christ will judge the nations and the wicked will stand before him And on that day, Jesus, the righteous judge, will bring about the justice of his wrath. Friends, there's only one place where justice is truly exercised. And that is in the courtroom of heaven. 
And we long for God to have his way. We are undeserving recipients of his justice that was applied to his son, which means that we are forgiven. But those who are wicked who continue to shake their fist at him will not have that blessing. They will receive the full brunt of his wrath. It's a heavy message, but it is a gospel message, and it is what we long for. Lord, we thank you for your kindness. Thank you, Lord, for for Job allowing us to to see into his heart and his longing and his passions. Lord, it's a reminder for us that we live in an unjust world, even with all the justice that is present. Lord, there's still so much injustice. And although we can't right all the wrongs here and now, we can attempt to do the best we can. But Lord, none of it will be complete until the courtroom of heaven has its say. And so Lord, we trust in that, we look forward to it, we long for it, and we rest in it knowing that you are a great God and Savior who rules and judges with fairness and with equity. We praise you, Lord, for the grace and the forgiveness that we have received because of you. Now, Lord, as we move from our time in the Word into our time where we celebrate the Lord's table, may we come to take these elements, Lord, with a, with a backdrop of your justice. That this payment that was made on the cross was not just an act of love, but Lord, it was also a settling of justice on the shoulders of your son. And by that wrath being poured out, we are set free. We deserve that wrath, Lord. But you've taken it. You've absorbed it. And you've paid for our sin. Oh, we praise you for that. May we now just contemplate the magnitude of what you've done for us as we celebrate your body and your blood. In your precious name, amen.